Hi everyone and welcome to the ADA podcast series which is presenting a series of topics identified by you, the members of the Australian Diabetes Educators Association. The ADA podcast series highlights latest updates and research in the areas that are relevant to best practice in diabetes management, diabetes care and diabetes education. My name is Jan Orford, a long-time member of ADEA, and I will be your host. Today we will be discussing diabetes in the older person with Tricia Dunning, who I'm sure is well known to all of you. Tricia has long held a special interest in this aspect of diabetes management and has written and spoken on the subject on many occasions in a variety of forums. Hi Tricia, and thank you for your time today. Hi, Jan. Thank you very much for inviting me to be part of what I am very passionate about. Thank you again. I'd like to start the session by asking you the first of the questions. As I've already indicated today, we are focusing on diabetes in the older person. And I wonder if you could outline for us what some of the particular issues are with this group in terms of their engagement with health services. Well, I'll start by defining what we call older age and it's generally older than 65, but I'll preface everything I say by pointing out that chronological age is not a good determinant of care needs. And so the general aim of care for older people is to enhance their function, their quality of life, to foster autonomy and help the individual maintain their connections and purpose in their life. And that is their self-concept and have a quality of life. And we focus on that by tailoring the care to the individual, which is not really a new concept. I'd also like to acknowledge that older people with diabetes have a very significant life experience and accumulated wisdom that can help them adapt to new situations, including situations involving diabetes, and solve those problems and engage with health service. However, I'd also point out that their solutions are often very different from those health professionals would recommend. So we need to understand that decision-making process as, uh, as they engage with health services. I think health professionals need to consider the following. It's a rather long list of issues, and that's starting by considering their functional status and their disease tra trajectory and whether they have type 1, which actually does occur in older people, or type 2, because that will set the scene for how we assess their risk and other assessments and how we personalise care. We also need to consider their life expectancy, their values, goals and treatment preferences. I think you'll note by now I've hardly mentioned anything there about diabetes assessment because it isn't the main focus of care for older people, particularly those that are not functionally independent out in the community, like me, I call those three ranges. They're likely to have at least three or more complications and other comorbidities, which means they're likely to require polypharmacy with all the attendant risks that go with that. They may have cognitive changes that might be due to some of those glucose-lowering medicines in the short term, or it might be dementia in the long term, and we know that diabetes is associated with, with dementia, and that requires a different topic all on its own. Under and malnutrition, even when the individual obese 
increases their risk of sarcopenia and frailty and the risk such as falls that go along with that and, and the change in their functional status. The symptoms often change. So common problems like hypoglycemia and urinary tract or other infections can be missed or delayed or labelled as delirium or something other than what the underlying cause is and treatment can be delayed as well. I highlight that tight blood glucose control may not be indicated, may not be safe for older people, especially those with functional deficits. So it's very important that we individualise, sorry, individualise the blood glucose range and the HbA1 targets. Also, that we do continue to test blood glucose, even, even given the current ruling on type 2 diabetes, people with type 2 testing. But it must be done at relevant times. And, and often I find it needs to be tailored to the action profile of whatever medicines they're on and to their eating, not not at just some random times that often occurs in aged care facilities. It's more important probably to manage cardiovascular risk because probably most of them will die from a cardiovascular event. Depression is common, so that needs to be managed and can be challenging to identify if they have dementia. They need to have very regular assessments and that needs to be proactively done so we can plan for life transitions such as stopping driving Although many people stop themselves, there are huge implications. Giving an example of myself, I could not get to the shops if I could not drive. I live too far away. We need assistance uh, in home care packages and whether or not they need uh, residential aged care. And we should be planning in older people for palliative and end of life care. And we also should be considering their general health status. So I'm talking about the whole person here, not just the diabetes. And that includes their vaccinations, their screenings for breast and prostate cancer, their sexual health and wellbeing, which, which a lot of people don't know, a very high proportion of sexually transmitted diseases and other sexual problems in older people and are not just erectile dysfunction. We need to be aware that pets are incredibly important to many older people and, and are key links to their quality of life that we need to be aware of elder abuse, whether that's physical, mental or financial, and bearing in mind that it often comes from health professionals. And also the family carers' needs. They take on a very significant burden, especially if the older person's on insulin, and they often have health issues themselves. And just finally, an answer to that long-winded answer is, that ageist attitudes and language need to be eradicated, but they're rife in our media and they're rife in our health system. Hopefully that um, answers your question. Thanks, Trish. That was a very comprehensive response. And I was wondering if you could, we could take that a step further and ask you to comment for us how you see these issues impacting on health outcomes in this older group. Yeah. And, and obviously they have a very significant impact on health outcomes, especially with the longer duration of diabetes. And bearing in mind that a lot of our older people currently are baby boomers, like me, and so they've, had, they've often come through quite significant changes before they develop diabetes, sometimes just after the war and the depression and those kind of things that affect the social situation and how they engage with health but also putting it in, in a societal thing because planning for healthcare in the future is important. Is something like 20% of older people 
have diabetes as a diagnosis, but a further 20% or more are at risk of diabetes, so they have metabolic syndrome, and are likely to present with a diabetes complication when they're already compromised, that can have a very significant impact on, on their outcome. And some recent research shows that the metabolic syndrome is associated with frailty, which we know also significant affects outcomes. So identifying undiagnosed diabetes in older people is incredibly important and determining whether that is type 1 or type 2 is important because type 1 can occur in older people, as I've already said, and may be called larder, but they actually need insulin treatment. Also, Australia is one of the top 10 countries with people who live to 100 and beyond. So all of these things are going to have a huge effect on their personal outcomes, depending on, on if you ask them how they live such a long life, you'll get 100 different answers. But it's important to um, put that in context. We know that people who live in remote and rural areas and those with lower health literacy are at most, of, most at risk of worse health outcomes and not engaging because it's very difficult in rural areas to get to services and that can, that can mean they delay for presentation and, and some of the problems that might have been preventable or remediable are not. They visit a whole range of healthcare providers. We talk about the diabetes healthcare team, which every time I look at it, it's got another different discipline added to it. But that means they're at huge risk of adverse events among transitions among those services. Things like uh, information that's not shared appropriately or de delayed, especially with respect to medicines. Medicine-related adverse events are many of which are preventable, and the two worst medicines are warfarin and insulin, the most common reason for admission. And most often these people are readmitted within 30 days because of the contact or, or the lack of information that's appropriately shared among providers. And that, that certainly affects their outcome because they may, may not survive another admission. The other problem I find is that families and carers and often health professionals don't recognise deterioration in their condition and their treatment can be delayed and that might be because the older person can't or doesn't want to or doesn't see it as important to worry people and don't present. But we know that, that they do present differently so we need a different kind of knowledge. And health professionals are quite reluctant to discuss emotive issues such as palliative and end-of-life care. And that might mean that people don't have advanced care planning and living wills and other important documents that might improve their care and, and reduce the amount of suffering and improve their outcomes. We know that early introduction of palliative care along with usual diabetes care does improve outcome, including function and, and duration of life. And another thing I think that's a problem is the inadequate training of some of the people that look after older people in residential aged care and this includes health professionals as well as non-health professionals and therefore it's costly. So I, I think the, the issues around the outcomes are partly the personal things and partly that interface between the healthcare service and the individual and their carers. Thanks Trish, you've, you've covered that very comprehensively, thank you again. I just wonder, you alluded to health professionals, and wonder if you could talk to us perhaps about what the particular skills are that you believe are required by health professionals 
assist in this group of people in, in their journey through the complexities of the health system, which you've alluded to several times. Yeah, and it's very difficult for us too. I, I think sometimes it's very difficult for us when the health system changes frequently. It's difficult for health professionals as well. But above all, I think health professionals need to be reflective practitioners and start by reflecting on their attitudes to old age and it's not everybody's cup of tea to manage older people. I, I was just um, educated by them. and But health professionals must understand at a basic level the ageing process and the effects of ageing on diabetes and vice versa because that's at the heart of some of the issues that we see such as functional decline and so on. They have to, I think, realise that people with type 1 diabetes are surviving and that type 1 is diagnosed in older age. And to know the importance of insulin in people with type 1 diabetes and the risk of ketoacidosis, and that does occur in older people. In fact, I have seen a couple of deaths in older people from ketoacidosis because they, were, they weren't testing for ketones because health professionals didn't think that older people had type 1 diabetes. They need to be able to understand the reasons behind the change symptom, symptomatology, such as silent myocardial infarcts and neuroglycopenic symptoms of hypoglycemia. So a basic understanding of pathophysiology in older people is useful. And I mean, I mean basic and even the basic pathophysiology of the changes in type 2 so they can understand why they often need more than one glucose-lowering medicine to manage their blood glucose. And it is important to manage the blood glucose. It's not nice. And people with diabetes are telling me frequently, if I've got hypoglycemia all the time, I can't think straight, I get a headache and I feel awful and my pain is worse. If they're hypoglycemia, they're absolutely petrified and that feels very bad as well. So being able to monitor those. I think we need to know how to undertake a comprehensive assessment in older people and to personalise the care based on that assessment, including risks such as risk of hypos and risk of medicine events and risk of pain. And how do we use that information with clinical practice guidelines to personalise care and to justify the care if we don't absolutely follow the guidelines, which is a guideline, not an absolute. So health professionals must have effective communication skills and that should include how to communicate bad news and discuss difficult topics like palliative and end-of-life care. They need to know what indicators there are for deterioration and when to refer to services like geriatric assessment. And I think understanding medicine's risks and their benefits for an individual is important. And finally, I'll say that we all must, no matter what we're dealing with, understand the limits of our knowledge and skills and seek help if we don't know. Trish, once again, answered very comprehensively and thank you again. That's actually the last of the questions I had for you, but perhaps I could ask you if you'd like to summarise for us what key messages you would like members to take home from this session today. I guess my key message is that it's very challenging, it's very rewarding and it can be frustrating helping older people with diabetes and their families and carers manage their diabetes and understand it. 
I'd like people to understand that older people make a very significant contribution to society in paid employment as well as volunteers. Thus, and I'll say it again, chronological age does not define the individual and diabetes does not define the individual. The individual is defined by who they are and it's inherent upon us to help us be who they are, the best they can be given their limitations. That any care we give and especially metabolic targets must be individualised so they are safe for that individual to help them live the life they want to live. It's essentially to proactively plan for the expected life stages, such as the need for aged care, palliative and end of care. And, and finally, that older people have a great deal of experience and wisdom, and we, we should engage with that wisdom because that will help us find out how to personalise the care for older people with diabetes and perhaps other older people as well. Thank you once again, Trish, for taking your time out of what I know is usually a very long and busy day for you. And I'd also like to thank the members for taking time to listen to this podcast. And certainly if you have any feedback or ideas for future podcasts, please let us know. And say thank you once again, Trish. It was really much appreciated for giving us your time. Goodbye. Thank you.